Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, the scripture says this about Old Testament saints. It says, These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we're going through church history chronologically, um, but also a little bit thematically. Uh, what that means is I am kind of following a general timeline of events and people, but as I'm going through that timeline, I'm also trying to kind of emphasize doctrinal and practical themes as they emerge in the process of that. So we've been uh, going over, recently in the last several lessons that we've had, we've been going over the Apostolic Fathers. And the Apostolic Fathers were those guys, they were the second generation, so to speak. They were those guys who came right after the Apostles. They knew uh, some of the Apostles, and they were the, the next generation of church leaders. We've talked about Clement of Rome a number of lessons ago. Last couple lessons we went over uh, Ignatius of Antioch, talked about both these guys' letters, what they said, the legacies that they left the church before they um, left, before they died. So this, this week we're going to kind of continue that same theme a little bit, but we're also going to pivot into our next theme. So we're going to cover a guy called Polycarp. One of the letters that Ignatius wrote um, that we still have, he wrote to this fellow called Polycarp, and Polycarp was also an apostolic father. He was, uh, he was alive still, or he was alive while the Apostle John was still present and alive. Apparently he knew John. And so today we're going to talk about his story a little bit. And then after we talk about his story, we're going to pivot into uh, the next thing that we want to, pretty much the next theme that we want to cover during our, our study of church history. So um, I'm going to tell two stories today, and uh, then we're going to move on. What I've titled today's lesson is Strangers and Exiles, and we're going to kind of try to take it in two parts, more or less. The first part's going to be today's two stories that we deal with, and then next week we're going to move on to part two and kind of um, uh, get some further, I guess, more perspective on what was going during the second century. So again, just by way of review, we've been through the first century, we've kind of just emerged into the second century at this point, Ignatius. The last apostolic father that we dealt with probably died in the early part of the second century, probably the first or second decade is when he was martyred. Now, Polycarp, who we're going to talk about today, as I said, he was an apostolic father. He knew the apostle John. He was the bishop of the church of Smyrna for a good long time. He was a bishop when Ignatius wrote, and at this point in his life that we're going to deal with today, he's still the bishop. He also, like Ignatius, was widely respected in his time. He was widely loved and revered among all the churches. Seems to have some influence. One of the things that Ignatius told Polycarp in his letter, he said, the time, quote, the time has come for you, the time calls for you to attain to God. Uh, if you read Ignatius' letters, attain to God was a statement that Ignatius used a, a lot. He used it often, usually in reference to himself, uh, what he was about to do. Attain to God was Ignatius' way of, of, of referring to his own impending execution and martyrdom. 
He felt that by going as and going through martyrdom, he was going to go to that last step of discipleship and finally uh, appear before God face to face. So when he tells Polycarp in the early, early part of the second century, he says, the time calls for you to attain to God. Whether he intended or not, it was kind of predictive. In a way, Ignatius was kind of predicting the martyrdom and execution that Polycarp was face. One thing that's different about Polycarp, an apostolic father from Clement and Ignatius, is he's not really remembered so much for his doctrine or his theology. Uh, and it's not that there was anything wrong with his, doc his doctrine. As far as we know, he was, he was a great, um, uh, great teacher. He had good, sound theology. We have, I think, only one letter of his that, that exists. It was written to the Philippians. And it's a pretty good letter. Uh, there's nothing really wrong with it. In fact, it's pretty solid in its, in its theology. Definitely worth a read. But one of the things about that letter is kind of unlike Clement's letter and Ignatius's letters, it, he doesn't really develop a lot of thought very deeply in that letter. It's kind of brief. Um, it, it's, it's generally fairly simple and just laying out the, some very simple doctrines. He does a lot of quoting of New Testament scriptures, all of which is very good. But he's, he doesn't really develop his thought that much. So I think kind of as a result of that, in church history, Polycarp was not remembered so much for what he did, I'm sorry, for what he said, but for what he did. And that was uh, pretty much, he's remembered for his martyrdom, for going, uh, going to execution as one who confessed Christ. That martyrdom is uh, recounted in a document that's called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. You can find it, it's all over the internet, it's in books. Um, we still have that today. What that letter is, or what that document is, is a letter that the Church of Smyrna wrote after Polycarp's death. They wrote it after his death, and they sent it to another church, and they quite apparently, if you read the letter, they quite apparently intended for that letter to be sort of preserved and uh, circulated among the churches, and it was. Um, and this, as far as we know, history tends to agree that it's pretty accurate in um, how it reflected what, what happened. So today we're going to look at that letter, we're going to look at the story about uh, Polycarp, what happened to him, and then after that we're going to pivot to another story. We're moving from a theme of the Apostolic Fathers right into a very important theme for the second century, and that is the theme of persecution. Second, the second century, and also the third century, which we'll get to, were difficult centuries for the church. There were two hostile forces, two big hostile forces. They were persecution and heresy. And these forces were trying to make an end of the Christian faith in various ways. Now, there are historians uh, who will remind us, and I agree with them, that when we deal with persecution in the early church, we don't want to get the wrong impression. It wasn't as though the Roman state at that time had this um, program of unrelenting, empire-wide extermination, trying to get rid of Christianity. That wasn't really what was going on. It's more accurate to say that at that time, there was a, well, Christianity was first of all illegal. It was officially illegal. It was considered an illegal cult, an illegal sect. And uh, parallel to that, it was also popularly despised. Many of the pagan people around Christians were suspicious of Christians, um, had problems with uh, Christianity. So this created a situation throughout the empire of uh, which was more or less could be summed up as sporadic persecution 
would spring up in various places at different times, usually um, instigated by some event um, or, or whatever was going on in the local situation. So the persecutions that occurred, they were varied in their intensity and scope, um, their duration, how long they lasted, uh, but many of them, possibly even most of them, could be especially brutal, especially um, the times being what they were. Ignatius, uh, just to revisit our, our timeline again, Ignatius was murdered, martyred under the Emperor Trajan. So Trajan became Emperor of the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, and he reigns about 117 AD. After Trajan became, uh, Hadrian became Emperor. He reigned a good long time. He was succeeded by Antoninus Pius in 138 AD. Then after Antoninus Pius, there was Marcus Aurelius, who succeeded him. He lived a good long time as well. Uh, he died in 161 AD. And all of these emperors officially considered uh, Christianity illegal and had various, sometimes uh, consistent, sometimes contradictory policies about how Christianity was to be dealt with in the empire. Under Marcus Aurelius, uh, some of the most severe persecutions broke out in various places, whether it was um, Asia, where Ignatius was from, where Polycarp was from, or parts of Europe or parts of Northern Africa. So we're going to take a look at some of the things that happened there today. Uh, any questions so far to this point? Okay. So Polycarp, as I said, he was the uh, Bishop of Smyrna. We've looked at this map a few times in the past. Um, so Smyrna is Asia Minor, that's over here. Smyrna's way down here on the coast, so probably can't see it, but there's a little dot here on this map for that. Uh, a lot of churches, of course, in this area. Ignatius is from, Ignatius that we talked about last time is from Antioch, so that's way over here. We just to the east of, of this whole area. He's from Smyrna, and um, Smyrna is where there appears to be sometime in probably about the 160s AD, a persecution broke out against the church in that city. Um, scholars are a little bit varied on it. Some of them might put a little put it a little earlier, um, possibly the 150s AD. But uh, according to Eusebius, who we've been reading, uh, it happened under the reign of Mark Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius. So many scholars go with that and, and suppose that this persecution happened at that time. Like so many other persecutions of that time period. There were, um, uh, this persecution was uh, officially, it was executed officially by the local government, and yet at the same time it was energized and cheered on by the public mob. So the story that the Church of Smyrna tells us in the martyrdom of Polycarp, it actually begins kind of with this background of Christians being rounded up, being denounced, and being brought to trial. It actually begins with the stories of two other men. Uh, one of them was named Germanicus, and the other was Quintus. Germanicus, for some reason, somehow was identified, denounced as a Christian, and arrested. Quintus, on the other hand, for some unknown reason, voluntarily turned himself in. He just went to the authorities and said, I'm a Christian. Basically turned himself in like that. And um, we don't really know why that was. It might have been he, he was especially confident in his testimony and, and, and steadfastness. It might have been he felt he could debate 
uh, have an argument with the with the rulers and maybe sway them and to uh, see you know to be merciful to the Christians. I don't know. We can only guess what his motives were. But at any rate, once in custody and once threatened with torture and death, Quintus capitulated, and he basically denied the faith um, and was and sacrificed to the idols. Now Germanicus, on the other man, other hand, was uh, wasn't he didn't actually turn himself in, but he was arrested. And when he was tried, he remained faithful. And um, they tried to plead with him. The, the, the Roman authorities did what they usually did. They tried to cajole him and, and make him change his mind. You know, they threatened him with uh, what was going to happen to him. But he remained steadfast, and finally they sentenced him to be devoured by wild animals. So they took him to the arena there, the amphitheater, and threw him to the whatever animals they had, and that's how he died. Now, as he died... The mob, the crowd, got really excited, um, and they basically became more bloodthirsty, and they began to shout for Polycarp to be arrested as well. Of course, Polycarp is the leader of the church in Smyrna. Everyone more or less knows who he is. So Polycarp, once he heard that the law was out looking for him, he decides to leave the city and hide in the countryside. So he goes, he moves around to a few houses, uh, doesn't really leave the Smyrna area. He sticks around there. Uh, probably because he was the leader. We don't really know. But for whatever reason, he stays kind of in that area. And sooner or later, as is inevitable, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, catch up to him. They torture a few people, find out where he is, and they arrest him. So when he's arrested, the story that we're told is that he treats the soldiers very hospitably. He feeds them, takes care of them, and and finally goes with them meekly and humbly to his trial. Now, on his way, as he goes to the trial, um, and when he arrives before the governor, pretty much they do the same thing. They try to coax him. He's a very old man as well. Um, not at all young. They begin to coax him. They begin to plead with him to just offer a sacrifice to the emperor or to the pagan gods, and yet he just uh, plainly refuses. And as he refuses, they get more and more impatient with him, and then begin to Threaten him. I'm going to go ahead and just read one of the more famous parts from that uh, martyrdom. Just give you an idea of what uh, the church remembers Polycarp as, what his testimony was. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, we have the governor trying him. Uh, and it says here, when he came near the proconsul, asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect for your old age, and other similar things, according to the custom, such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. And Polycarp sternly gazed at the crowd of wicked heathen in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them and groaning, looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear an oath, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, For eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I trust him? Savior. It goes on, and it says, uh, Polycarp, or the, the proconsul told him to swear by the fortune of Caesar, and Polycarp responded, Since you insist that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretend not to know who and what I am, let me make this clear to you. I am a Christian. And then he goes on 
Uh, he says, I can persuade you of Christianity. The, the proconsul kind of mockingly says, persuade the crowd. They're the ones who are, who are angry. Polycarp says, you know, I can offer an account of my faith to you, but I can't talk to this crowd. And finally, the proconsul tells him, all right, well, if you're not afraid of the animals that I can throw you to, I'm going to burn you alive. And so that's what they decided to do. Polycarp was executed by being burned at the stake. They took him into the arena, tied to the stake, and basically set him on fire. After Polycarp died, um, some of the Christians there wanted to collect and bury his remains. Uh, the few parts of his body that had survived the fire that weren't completely consumed. Um, but the soldiers tried to prevent that. I think they got a few of those pieces, but they just, uh, for the most part, the soldiers tried to clean up as much as they possibly could. One of the things that they said, and this kind of just goes to show how much misunderstanding there was in the minds of the people that were persecuting Christians at that time. One of the things that the pagans said at that time is they feared that now, if uh, with Polycarp killed, Christians might change from worshiping Christ and now worship Polycarp. And of course, the, the document that we have says that's absurd, but that's nonetheless what they thought. But there are some good things that came out of Polycarp's martyrdom, at least for the church. Um, it was perhaps one of the most famous martyrdoms of the second century. Uh, there's a whole bunch that happened at that time. This is one of the ones that the church remembers um, better, probably because it was recorded so well. But it did also result in some peace and smile for the Christians. It seems one of the things the letter says is that after he died, the, the persecution in Smyrna seemed to die down. The uh, unbelievers there, the Roman governor there, seemed to be more or less kind of satisfied. All right, we, we hit those Christians pretty hard, so we don't need to keep this going. However, there were still a lot of persecutions that sprang up elsewhere. One of the other very famous persecutions that occurred was all the way on the other side of the Roman Empire. So we go from uh, Asia Minor over to what was then called Gaul, or is today modern-day France. That's going to be up here. There are two cities in France, or Gaul. One is called Lyon, the other is called Vienne. So they're right here. I don't know if you can see this river, how it flows down. Uh, that's the Rhone. These two cities are kind of right there on that river. So over there, we have another persecution spring up. And again, we don't know all the details, but it's, this persecution gets really intense. And it's one of the more brutal persecutions on record. This happened after Polycarp's martyrdom. It happened sometime toward the end of Marcus Aurelius' reign. So this would be 170s AD. Uh, Christians there were suffering extreme prejudice. The events of the persecution are recorded for us in a letter that the, the uh, all churches sent to the churches in Asia Minor. And uh, Eusebius recorded that, uh, wrote down that letter, but he uh, uh, saved that letter for us. According to what that letter says, Christians were already suffering persecution in, in Gaul by way of, um, uh, by way of, discrimination, they were being evicted from homes, they were being banned from public places, and eventually that discrimination escalated into full-on violence. The two cities of Lyon and Vienne, there were riots, uh, the, um, there were mobs that went around, started beating and, and, and grabbing Christians, and then the Christians were dragged before the tribunal in Lyon, and they stood trial there before the governor. But the letter tells us that 
for those who confessed they were Christians, they were cruel torches. People were burned, they were whipped, they were beaten. For those who did not confess, sometimes they were tortured as well, even if they denied Christ. And naturally, what we see in the letter as well is that the torturers really focused the bulk, the torturers really focused the bulk of their efforts on two strategic targets. First, they went after the church leaders. Um, uh, the letter names three men specifically. There was Sanctus, a deacon from Vienne. There was Apophanes, who was the bishop of Lyon, and Atalus, who was maybe not in a position of leadership, but he was considered a pillar in the church there in Lyon. And so the torturers really went after these guys. They burned Sanctus with red-hot brass plates, according to the letter. And after a few days of him healing from that, they came back and they did it all over again. And then for Pothinus, he was a very elderly bishop. They, they dragged him around, kicked him, and beat him for an extended period of time. The second strategic target that those torturers went after were the weakling, so-called. So one example was a particular slave, slave woman named Blandina. Uh, for some reason, either owing to the fact that she was a slave or maybe some perceived frailty of hers, everyone thought that Blandina was going to give in under torture. In fact, instead, she proved to be one of the toughest ones there. Uh, her unexpected stubbornness actually kind of uh, provoked the torturers to be even more cruel to her. This is what the letter says about Blandina. Quote, Blandina was filled with such power that those who tortured her from morning until night grew exhausted. They had nothing left to do to her. They were astounded that she was still alive, for her whole body was smashed and lacerated. So after days of torture and mistreatment, these saints uh, stood the test. Finally, they were taken to the Lyon Amphitheater for execution. Sanctus and Pontinus were whipped, beaten, they were mauled by wild animals, and then finally they were burned alive by being made to sit in uh, what's called a, an iron chair. They heated an iron chair red hot, um, and they were placed in that, and finally they died. Now, Landina and Atalus actually survived this, this day in the amphitheater. Landina, for some reason, the animals wouldn't attack her on this first day. And also, Atalus had his execution uh, deferred for a short time. It was halted, and the reason was that he was a Roman citizen. So the governor was still kind of thinking, I think he was waiting for a letter from the emperor to, to tell him how he should deal with Roman citizens. So both Atalus and Blandino were sent back to jail. Now that actually proved to be a pretty big mistake on the part of the, of the governor. Back at the jail, there were, uh, well, the, the whole group of Christians who at that point had been arrested. The letter tells us that as a result of persecution, um, the majority of what were called the most effective members of the churches in those two cities were all arrested and rounded up. So the, uh, it seems like the majority of the churches is, is arrested and in jail. And among that group of Christians, there are Christians who are have been faithfully confessing Christ and holding true to him. There's been a big number who have denied him and have uh, capitulated, lapsed. But when Atalus and Blandina get back to jail, what they do is they start to uh, encourage, to counsel, and to exhort those Christians who have lapsed. Begin to tell them, you guys should hold to your faith. And so there's this sort of mutual building up and strengthening that the church is doing while they're all in jail. So these Christians are all in jail. It lasted a number of days. I'm not sure how long, but uh, eventually after a period of time, the governor decides, okay, it's time to bring them out for execution. There was a citywide festival 
So the governor decides this is a perfect time for the public executions. The Christians who are in jail who had denied Christ, they're still in jail because the governor wants to cross-examine them publicly and have them sort of publicly deny Christ, probably do a sacrifice or something to pay God. So at this festival, the governor brings out all the Christians, those who have uh, remained true in their confession, he executes. And those who have had previously denied Christ, he brings them forward one at a time. And as they come forward, uh, one at a time to basically give their final denial, they begin to recant their denials. And they begin saying, I am a Christian, and Christ is my Savior. And what's more, they kind of had a little bit of more help doing this. It seems God gave a great deal of mercy, both in uh, uh, what happened there and through the, the help of other church members. Um, there's a guy named Alexander who was also a Christian there in Lyon. He hadn't been caught yet. But he was a really good Christian and, and really wanted to encourage people. So on the day that all these Christians are brought forward for their final cross-examination, he positions himself in the crowd where he can make eye contact with those who are on trial. And as they are coming forward to give their confession, he sort of just nods and gestures and smiles and prays for them where they can see him and is just encouraging them to you know, give a good confession for Christ. It's not long, of course, before the crowd finally realizes what he's doing. They drag him out, ask him, are you a Christian? He says, yes, I am. So they send him to be executed. In the end, uh, what the letter tells us is that the majority, not all, but the majority of those who denied Christ up front ended up remaining true to him in the end. And so they are also executed. The people of Gaul had a lot of executions on their hands that day. We're told that some Christians were beheaded, others were strangled, thrown to animals, others were whipped or burned alive. Uh, most uh, most of them probably had a combination of all these torments. It was a, uh, a type of gladiatorial, so to speak, gladiatorial um, entertainment for the crowd that day. Blandina, uh, Atalus, uh, he went through similar tortures to Sanctus and then Poppinus. He um, whipped and beaten and finally burned alive in the iron chair. Blandino was wrapped in a net and thrown to a bull, and after being tossed about by the bull for some time, she finally died as well. And then once all these Christians, um, both named and unnamed, uh, died, the Romans were best to completely eliminate their remains by burning them. Eusebius um, opens, when he deals with this particular chapter of church history, um, it's in book five of the work we've been going through, the, his, his work called The Church History. I really love how Cebius opens this book. He talks about um, uh, what the intention of his, his recording did these events is. I'm going to just go ahead and read his account. I think he says it very well. He says this at the beginning of that part. He says, other historians have limited their coverage to recording victories in war, the exploits of commanders and the heroics of soldiers stained with blood for the blood of thousands they have slaughtered for the sake of country, family, and property. My account instead will make indelible the wars fought for peace of the soul of the men who battled courageously in such wars for truth rather than country, piety rather than family. One of the questions that we historians always want to ask is why did the people of the 2nd century in Gaul and Asia Minor and 
North Africa and elsewhere. Why did they hate the Christians so much? Um, certainly there were some accusations that these people made. They accused the Christians of causing natural disasters and so forth. Um, they, uh, there was wild rumors about Christians committing cannibalism and incest in the meetings. But really, I don't think that these uh, rumors actually were what incited the rage against Christians. These were just rumors that kind of gave a sense of justification for that rage. The heart of it comes down to the fact that in the second century, Christians very evidently had a higher allegiance and a deeper affection. They had an allegiance to Christ uh, that was quite foreign to that of their pagan neighbors. Things like country and family and property and all the other things that go with them, those are good things. But Christians' affection for those things is ordered differently. Uh, while the world orders those things first, Christians order those things in the place that they deserve as temporal things, temporal things that are passing away. Um, most of the time, I think throughout history, what we as Christians face is not actually severe persecution that demands we deny Christ outright. Instead, it's a pressure to order things differently, to order our affections the way that the world around us orders their affections. I remember when I lived overseas, there was a statement, a comment that I ran into all the time when people would become believers, uh, new believers. One of the things that their family would often say is, oh, it's great that you believe. Don't believe too much. Don't believe too strong. In other words, this is an enriching thing, this faith that you have, this religion. So it's an enriching thing for your life. But don't go too deep in it. And we may not hear those same statements here in this culture, but the pressure is the same. The pressure is to put the things that the world considers most important as having the first order in our affections. Um, we do treasure country and family and property, but we treasure it knowing that all of those things are temporal and passing away. I think the Christians, the Christians of the second century may have had a little bit of an advantage over us as well in that they had no delusions. Uh, in their time, the Roman emperors were pagan, the local governors and rulers in the provinces were pagan, um, the people groups around them were all pagan, and none of these pagan groups paid any kind of lip service to the God of the Bible or to Christ. And so the second century Christians knew that they were strangers and exiles in their world, in their context. One of the disadvantages that I think we face today is that that's gotten a little confusing for us. There's been a little bit of, well, a long time of history between the second century and now. There have been nations that have paid lip service to Christ and to God, the Father, and it's blurred our vision. But I think what can help us clear our vision a little bit is going back to the beginning of the church, the beginning of our history and remembering that that was never part of the picture. It wasn't predicted as being part of the picture. We do, and we are, we do serve an eternal God and we're part of an eternal kingdom. The kingdoms that are temporal that we live in are valuable, but we have to put them in the right order uh, as far as our affections go. So next week we're going to look at part two. There's going to be a response that the church has to all of this persecution, and I think that response will give us some very good examples of how Christians at that time ordered their affection for their country and their, the people around them in the right kind of way.